like most kids, I enjoyed going to my grandparents' house on the weekend. And if it was the summer, I enjoyed spending most weeks of the summer with my grandparents, but especially for the rest of the year, weekends were my time to go to the grandparents' house because, you know, there was just no better place on earth than going to my grandma's house and my grandpa's house, uh, mainly because my grandmother was and still is a fantastic cook and she would make me anything that I wanted at any time of the day or night. She would get out of bed, make it for me if I asked her to. Parents, they don't do that kind of stuff. Uh, that's a grandparent kind of thing. Uh, grandparents are a lot like Jesus. Parents eventually get to be like Jesus. Uh, but in those days, you know, my grandmother, she would fix me whatever I wanted, you know, cream of wheat, hog jaw, fried eggs, hamburger, it doesn't matter. And I know you're surprised, hog jaw. There is a little bit of a redneck underneath this blue shirt, I'll tell you. And uh, you, can't, you can't grow up in Bell County without, you know, knowing what real food is all about. Can I get a witness for syrup and butter, right? I mean, <clears throat> not syrup and butter, it's syrup and butter. You're not doing it right if it's syrup and butter. But we, we would have all kinds of fun with food. And then my grandfather, he, he would basically, you know, buy me anything I asked him to buy me, you know, not big things, but, you know, small things. And when you're a kid, that's a really big deal because, again, I come back to the parent thing. They don't do that. And, and But your grandma and your grandpa do that type of thing. But, but circa fifth grade, sixth grade, you know, when life is beginning to introduce you to drama, uh, you know, the great thing about my grandparents, they would do something that my parents would never let me do. They would let me stay up late and talk on the phone. Now, when you're in the fifth and sixth grade, I know some of you, you're not impressed because you have a phone in your pocket right now and you sleep with your phone. But back before we slept with our phones, phones were attached to a wall and they had cords on them and they could only be stretched for so, so far, you know. And so they would let me stay up late and talk on the phone. And of course, you would talk to girls, talk to some of your buddies or whatnot. And, and I can remember one specific weekend, there, there was a lot of drama going on in my life. There was a, a romantic conundrum and I was in a serious relationship in the fifth grade and and I decided to step away from her decided just wasn't right and, and just didn't feel right and, and, and you know the best thing I could do for her was to break up with her and, and it was more about me than it was her it wasn't her fault it was really my fault and, and then that was on Monday but on Friday she did the most unexpected thing she started going with my best friend Scott now for those of you who don't know what going with means it didn't mean they traveled somewhere together that they just kind of dated that they they went with each other and they started dating and then all of a sudden I thought well he must see something in her that I failed to miss so all of a sudden my heart shifted and I wanted her back. And, and so, you know, again, this is the drama that is so fifth grade. And, and so I, I was spending the night with my grandparents and I was trying to think of how can I get her back? How can I win, how can I win her back? How can I win her back? Well, I was sitting up late talking on the phone and I was listening to AM 1490 WFXY, the Foxy in Middlesbrough. And uh, on Friday and Saturday night, there was a call-in show with uh, Middlesbrough's most loved disc jockey known as Clarence Yeary. And on the radio, his call sign was the Playa. And so the Playa was on Friday and Saturday night. And back then you could call in and actually dedicate people a song. It was the most amazing thing. We don't do that much anymore. So I, I, I had to plan in consultation with friends. I decided to make a bold move. And so I decided to have my friends call my ex-girlfriend and, and to tell her to listen to the radio. And so I, I decided I was gonna call the Playa and I said, listen here, I gotta, here's my situation. I need you to help me. And he's like, hey, do you wanna, do you wanna talk on the radio? I was like, 
<laughs> no, I, I want you to talk on the radio for me. Now, like I said, this is a very bold move for me. And so I, I want you to play a particular song because I think that she really wants to be back with me. And, and, and I feel like, you know, I've got the perfect song uh, for her. So if you would just, you know, say what I told you and then play this song. And then this was the song that I played that night. I think it was perfect. See if you've heard it before. Heart. If I was going to win Jen back, she needed to listen to her heart. I don't know where she was going, but I didn't have the answer other than listen to your heart. It didn't work. And so I grew up and I still love that song. And I think about that, you know, on occasion when I hear that song and, and I'm at a place in my life now where, you know, tables have turned, I turned 40 this year. And when you turn 40, you just know things that you didn't know when you were in fifth grade. I don't know how that happens, but you thought you saw the world completely clear, but it turns out you didn't. And, and so what I thought was a great song and what I thought was great advice uh, is still a great song, but I no longer consider it great advice. And we love the idea of listen to your heart. We, we love it in songs. We love it, you know, in culture. But behind the idea of listen to your heart is this belief that when there is a decision to make, and it's an important decision to make, your heart ultimately, somewhere within it, knows the right answer. That's the belief behind listen to your heart, that when there is a difficult decision to make, somewhere in your heart, though it may not be obvious at first, somewhere within your heart, there is the answer waiting for you to surface it. And so our culture just loves this idea. You know, listen to your heart. You know, we say other things that mean the same thing. We say, follow your heart. Somebody asks us, hey, what do you think, you know, I should do? And we say, oh, you know, just follow your heart. You know, do whatever makes you happy, right? We say that from time to time. You know, do, just do whatever makes you happy. If that's gonna make you happy, that's what you should do. You know, we use the sentiment, if it's okay with you, it must be okay for you. If it's okay with you, then it's okay for you. So just go do it. As long as it doesn't hurt you, just, just go ahead. If it feels right to you, and you think it's right, then go ahead. And it just goes on and on and on. It's this idea of listen to your heart, follow your heart. And this idea is romanticized. It's romanticized in movies, in songs, obviously, and in novels. And the idea behind all of those phrases is this right here, that no one knows what is best for me more than me. That, that's the belief. That's the belief that gives birth to all those phrases, that no one knows what is best for me more than me, and no one knows what is best for you more than you that somehow our hearts within our heart is a map and that map has an X and that X marks the spot for happiness and satisfaction. And if we can only allow our hearts to lead us, our hearts ultimately and singularly know how to take us from the place where we are to a place of happiness and satisfaction. The only thing that we're responsible to do is to follow our heart. Now, this type of advice is alive and well outside the church in our culture, but I have been around long enough inside the church. I've listened long enough. I've read enough. I know that this very same type of advice is very much alive and well inside the church, except Christians, we're smart. And we just don't say things that the world's saying. No, we spiritualize it and we baptize it and we make it sound churchy and we make it sound biblical. And so, you know, we say things like this. We give this piece of advice. Let your conscience be your guide. 
What, you're going, you got a difficult situation, you don't know what to do? Hey, let me tell you what, I think the best thing for you to do is just let your conscience be your guide. It's the same thing repackaged to sound just a little bit better. Follow your heart, listen to your heart, do whatever makes you happy. If it's okay with you, then it must be okay for you. If it doesn't bother you, then, then hey, go ahead, green light. You know, go forward with it. If it doesn't bother you, then hey, it, it's all game for you. If you have a difficult decision to make, you know, I've heard this among Christians, you know, if you have a difficult decision to make, but you've prayed about it and no answer came, uh, you've even opened up the scripture and you couldn't find a verse, or maybe you opened up the scripture and you found a few verses, but this group of Christians said one thing about it and another group of Christians said another thing about it. And so it wasn't, you know, really a consensus about what the Bible said about the thing that you were trying to decide about. And, and so there you were, you were left in the middle of it. And so the Bible wasn't clear about it. And so, you know, someone just said, hey, let your conscience be your guide. If prayer isn't working and there's not a verse on it, and if there's not you know, clarity about what the verses actually say in the Bible, then hey, let your conscience be your guide. And of course, we all remember where most of us heard this, it was from the great theologian, Jiminy Cricket, when, when he spoke to Pinocchio and he said, hey, you know, whistle as you go, but let your conscience be your guide because it's not going to take you in the wrong place. Just listen to your heart, follow your heart. And so, but Christians, we like to talk about conscience and there is a resurgence in our culture of discussion and dialogue around the Christian conscience and betraying Christian conscience and violating Christian conscience and what all that means. So that's what I wanna talk about today. I wanna talk about conscience. And, and let me just go ahead and tell you, today is one message about the conscience in the middle of a series. Uh, I understand that the, the idea of conscience is so much larger than one sermon. So there's a lot I could say and a lot I probably should say, but I won't be able to get into one message, but I, I found this so fascinating. I think I do want to come back and do a series on it sometime in the future, but I think the best thing for us all to do is to try to develop a foundational framework for what we think of when we think of conscience so that we know how we relate to conscience, how we know that we're supposed to feel about conscience. And so that's what I want to do. I, I, want, to, I want to tell us what the scriptures say in a very wide angle lens about conscience. And then at the very end, I want to draw a really small circle around what that means for all of us. So here, here's a foundational framework based on what the scriptures teach us about conscience. Number one, our conscience is a gift from us or a gift to us from our heavenly father. That, that's what we find introduced in the scriptures, that our conscience is a gift to us from our heavenly father, that the scriptures say that everybody is born with a conscience. Everyone is born with a conscience. That means that everybody is born with the capacity on some level to reason about what is right and what is wrong. That everybody has the capacity within their consciousness to be able to put together thought and rationale and logic as it relates to things that we believe are right and things that we believe are wrong. Now, when we think about conscience, one of the first things that we ought to think about is why in the world did God give us a conscience to begin with? What was the point? What was the purpose? If the thing that makes us unique within the biosphere as human beings, men and women, boys and girls created in the image of God, the thing that makes us unique from the rest of the animal kingdom is the fact that we have a conscience. And so we should be curious why it is that we humans have a conscience. And so when we ask the question, why did God give us a conscience? Uh, the first answer is just really straight forward is because God loves us and God didn't want us to destroy ourselves and God didn't want us to destroy each other. So what did he do? He gave us a conscience so that we could wrestle with ideas about what was right and what was wrong. But beyond that, the New Testament specifically talks about conscience in the sense of that God placed conscience within us so that ultimately we would ask ourselves, where did conscience come from? 
And we would ultimately be able to deduce through logic and evidence that the moral standard in which I sense internally must have been given from outside of me and from something transcendent beyond me. And ultimately, the scriptures say that conscience is a witness to us towards the existence of God. That we all have an idea of right and wrong. We have the ability to rationale about right and wrong. And it is a gift to us from our creator. It is unique to us. And God placed conscience within us so that we would ask, where did that come from? If you've read Mere Christianity with C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite books, one of my favorite authors, and he says that this is the great mystery of life, that every person is born with an ought. Every person is born with a sense of an ought to or ought not to. And C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity that human beings all over the earth, we have this curious idea that we ought to behave in a certain way, and we can't get rid of it. And ultimately, that mystery points us back to God because we ask, where did this conscience come from? This conscience, which is an awareness or a consciousness of what we believe to be right and wrong. Now, you gotta hear that because if not, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you some information, but I promise in the end, you're gonna be glad you listened to all this because this is gonna be worth your trip. Our conscience is consciousness or awareness of what we believe to be right and wrong. Not necessarily what is right and wrong, but what we believe to be right and wrong. That's the reason that your conscience is always urging you to do what you believe is right, and it's always urging you to abstain concerning what you believe is wrong. That's what the scriptures teach us. It's a gift to us from our heavenly father, our creator. Second thing is this, our conscience isn't the voice of God. It is the voice of our soul echoing our personal values. And lots of times people say, well, God was speaking to me. No, he wasn't. That was your conscience. And your conscience is not the voice of God. Your conscience is not the Holy Spirit leading you. It's not the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Your conscience, which exists in believers and unbelievers alike, your conscience is not the voice of God. It is the voice of your soul. It is the echo of your soul echoing your personal values. Whatever your personal value system may be, your conscience is a voice to that value system. And here's what your conscience is trying to do. This is how God programmed your conscience. That regardless of what your value system is, your conscience is always trying to bring your decisions, your life, your conduct in line with your values. That's what your conscience is there for, to bring alignment in between the life you live and the values that you have. And that's the reason that when there is alignment between your value system and how you live your life, your conscience cheers for you. Yay, awesome, way to go. And all of a sudden you feel joy and you feel wellness and wholeness and you feel self-respect because when your values are in alignment with the way that you live life, your conscience cheers for you. But when your value system is not aligned with the way that you live life, your conscience and my conscience condemns us. And when our conscience condemns us for being out of alignment with our value systems, that's the reason we're left with emotions like guilt, shame, and regret. Because this is, this is fascinating, the way that God has created us. Our conscience is always in real time evaluating our motives, not only what we do, but why we do it. Our conscience is always evaluating our attitudes, our actions, our decisions, our words, our relationships, our plans. And in real time, our consciousness is evaluating whether or not what we intend to do or what we're actually doing is in line with our value system. And when it is, it cheers for us. And when it isn't, it 
condemns us. It speaks to us accordingly. Third thing is this. Our conscience reflects how we have been informed and influenced regarding what is valuable and what is moral. Now, follow me for just a minute, all right? I know you're an above average crowd. It's the reason you attend church here. So listen, you, you can get this. An average crowd could not take this this morning, but you are an above average crowd. Depending on the family that you were born into, depending on the faith tradition that you were reared in, the era of time in which you were born and raised, the religion that you came out of and what part of the world that you were born and raised in has much to do with how your conscience was informed as to what is valuable and what is moral and immoral. And subsequent to that, subsequent to that, depending on, you know, the family you grew up in, you know, did you grow up in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, are you millennial, are you generation X, are you generation Z, are you a baby boomer? Depending on all of that, depending on the type of church, depending on the religion, depending on all of that, that has a lot to do with how your conscience has been programmed and what your conscience believes about what is valuable and what is right and what is wrong. And then subsequent to all of that, depending on what you've read, depending on your level of exposure to information, depending on your personal bias of what you hope is right and what you hope is wrong, and depending on your level of maturity and how you've grown up over the years and your level of open-mindedness and life experience, all of that continues to inform your conscience to this very day and to this very moment. Now, this is how I know this is true because I grew up Baptist. I grew up just not only Baptist like some of you, I grew up fundamental, independent Baptist. Now that's serious. Some of you don't know, but it's a serious thing to be born into a fundamental, independent Baptist church. That meant that my church had lots of rules. Some of those rules could be found in the Bible. Most of those rules could not be found anywhere in the Bible, but we had rules and we were proud of them. Now. I had lots of friends growing up and, and, and I started noticing this when I got you know, into middle school, but I had lots of friends who were Catholic and some were Presbyterians and Methodists. And I noticed they didn't have as many rules per se as what we had in our independent fundamental Baptist church. And, and one of the things that just blew me away was the first time I was at one of my Catholic friends' house and I opened up the fridge to get a Gatorade and there was alcohol. <laughs> in their house. And I sat back and thought about this for a moment because these are church-going people. These are people who've named the name of Christ. And there's alcohol. Did I say, in their house? And so I'm sitting there and thinking, wow, this, this is crazy because my parents, they would never be seen with alcohol. They would never have alcohol, you know, cross over the threshold of their house. It just wouldn't happen. I mean, we had rules about that kind of stuff. And so, you know, you know when you're in middle school, you, 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 you can have lots of very great theological discussions and it gets really deep because in middle school, you can, just, you can just penetrate, you know, the shallowness of theology and get down there into the depth of it all. And so, you know, me and my friends, we'd have theological discussions. It'd be like, your parents drink? Why do your parents drink? I guess they want to. They say, do your parents drink? No. Why, why don't your parents drink? They're Christian. And then they were like, but our parents are Christian. Oh yeah, that's okay. Well, there's a reason why they don't drink. I, I, you know, they, they think it's a really bad idea. And they were like, yeah, our, our parents drink. Your parents don't drink. No, they don't drink. And they was like, hey, you know, it, it's, even, it's even worse than you think. I was like, what? And they said, our parents, they're Catholic. They even drink at church. 
Your family drinks in church? Alcohol, are you kidding me? How is that even possible? Like, yeah, don't you, haven't you read the Bible? Like Jesus was the first bartender turned water to wine. Yeah, but that was Welch's. That was not real wine. What are you talking about? That's not real wine. That was Welch's grape juice. Who's been teaching you the Bible? Let me tell you, and it wasn't a party either. It was a prayer meeting. So you had people who love Jesus or part of the church, but one of their conscience said yes to this and the other's conscience said no to this. And it had much to do with how their conscience had been informed regarding what is valuable and what is right and what is wrong. Some of you, you, you grew up in churches you know, that said, hey, you can't dance, you can't dance. A dancing foot and a praying knee doesn't grow in the same body, come on, doesn't happen. But then, then you heard other churches, they, they not only danced outside of church, bless God, they danced inside church. And it was like, what? You dance? How do you dance? And then, you know, for some, it was like, you can't wear this type of clothing. And, you know, our conscience would never allow us to wear shorts or pants. You know, we got to wear this and, you know, that type of music. And, and conscience can vary from person to person depending on how they have been informed concerning what is valuable and what is moral, both moral and immoral. And so it can vary from, from person to person, Christian to Christian. It's why this is such a fascinating thing and a complicated thing. Next thing is this, our conscience can be misinformed. Thus our conscience isn't infallible. If our conscience can be informed, our conscience can also be misinformed. Now, this is really important. So if you've not been listening or you're Googling something, look up and, and, and tune in for just a moment. Conscience, yours or mine, doesn't determine right and wrong. That was never the intent of conscience. Our conscience is not to determine what is right and wrong, but our conscience is the voice of what we believe, what we have adopted, what we have been taught is right and wrong. And even though our conscience can be misinformed, and even though it's fallible, it still holds us accountable even if it has received faulty information. Now, again, this is important. It is possible for somebody to believe something is right and it actually be wrong. It's possible for someone to believe something is right to the point that their conscience is not bothered by it, but yet what they're doing is actually wrong because the conscience can be programmed in a particular way. It is also possible for someone to be misinformed and believe something is wrong when in reality it isn't wrong at all. It's actually okay. This is our conscience. Again, this is why it's complicated and fascinating all at the same time because you have to pay close attention to how your conscience has been informed. You have to be very honest about how your conscience has been informed. Because what good is a scale at home if you step on it to find out how much you weigh if the calibration's off? How much does the police care if your speedometer is off when you're driving down the interstate and it said you were going slower but actually you were going faster? What if your wristwatch is not able to keep time? It has become faulty and in some ways it is counterproductive because you can become and I can become a slave to a misinformed conscience. A misinformed conscience, as many of us already know, is very difficult to recalibrate. If your conscience early in life is, you know, happened to be misinformed about some things, it is very difficult to reinform and to transform your conscience from the wrong information that it received early in life. Let me, let, me, let me again tell you what I'm talking about. Some of you grew up in church circles where it was told to you that the only Bible that one 
could read if they were a Christian was the King James Version of the Bible. The King, J the KJV 1611, the King James Version. And that's the only Bible. Matter of fact, when Jesus walked on water on the Sea of Galilee, he had a King James Version underneath his arm. But then, but then, you begin to mature in your faith and you, you begin to be exposed to other lines of thought and all of a sudden you, you, you begin to understand that your conscience was misinformed. Because up until that point, if you had ever been in a church and somebody stood up with a different version of the Bible, you know what you would have done? You would have gotten up and walked out because your conscience had been finally tuned to something that was misinformation. Matter of fact, you, you went there and, and it was like, oh gosh, uh, that, uh, something's wrong. I just don't feel good about that. That's, mm, that's bad. And then you begin to mature in your faith and you begin to realize your conscience was misinformed and you know what you did? You went out and you bought in a radical step of faith, a new King James Version Bible. <laughs> And the first time you touched it, the first time you started reading it, it's just, it's just, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have done this. And it, you felt a little dirty, but then you liked it. So, hmm. And now some of you have gotten even to the place where you have shopped for an ESV. And some of you have even jumped off the deep end and you even own an NIV in your home. Your conscience has evolved. What used to not feel okay feels okay because you realize your conscience had been misinformed and you were able to recalibrate it around what is actually true. Again, our conscience, going on to the next thing, can be repeatedly wounded until it loses its voice. Your conscience can be repeatedly wounded until it loses its voice. You can silence your conscience, overrule your conscience. You can suppress your conscience over and over and over again and pretty soon it becomes seared, it becomes calloused, it becomes desensitized, it loses its voice. It loses its voice. This is why the scriptures are very clear that we are never supposed to sin and violate our conscience when we believe that our conscience has been rightly informed. If we believe our conscience has been rightly informed and we sin and violate our conscience, the intent of our heart was to sin. And so the scripture says, because it wasn't a faith, it means that it is sin. Now you can violate your conscience if you believe that your conscience wasn't rightly informed. So again, this is such a big deal. And we throw around this term of conscience and sometimes we don't even understand what we're saying. Paul talked about conscience and he talked about when you suppress your conscience over and over and over again, pretty soon God's gonna give you over to your desires. God's gonna go ahead and let you chase the sin, the sin that you are bent on having in your life. And he says, then you end up in the worst state of sin, which is to have no consciousness of sin. And when you're in a place where you have no consciousness of your sin, Paul says that's the worst state of sin to be in. And so the scriptures lets us know that our conscience is intended to be a follower and not a leader. I'm not supposed to follow my heart, not supposed to follow my conscience. When I do, I always lose and it always costs me. Now, I wanna tell you something, I wanna tell you the truth and I wanna put all the cards on the table because if I weren't honest in this, it wouldn't mean as much. I wanna give you an unpleasant truth. Your heart can't be trusted to guide you or to lead you. And the reason that I know that to be true is because I cannot trust my heart to lead me and guide me. Let me tell you about me. I am a manipulative person. I can manipulate me better than I can manipulate anyone. I am creative. I am smart. I am well-read. 
And in my line of work, I can claim a verse, I can pull a scripture, I can find theology, I can find doctrine, I can find precedent to justify and rationalize just about anything that I'm bent on doing. And you know what? You can too. When you are bent on doing something, you can rationalize and justify doing it as good as anybody else. You can manipulate you, you're creative, you're smart, you don't have to know a lot of verses, you know just enough to be dangerous. And that's the reason that Jeremiah, the prophet to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, he, he said this, he said, don't forget this, this is important. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? It's beyond cure, it's beyond cure. And the heart in the Jewish mind, in, in the Jewish terms of thinking about theology, the heart was our conscience. It involved our emotions, our feeling, our desires, our rationale. He says, if you allow your emotions, your feelings, your desires, and your conscience to follow you, it's deceptive. It will lead you into some really bad places. It will lead you in the wrong way. Let me tell you about me. Let me see if this is true of you. Sometimes I want to redefine what is right and redefine what is wrong to accommodate what I want to do. Sometimes I want to change my beliefs to excuse my behavior. Sometimes I want to adopt a theology that believes that God doesn't care, that God doesn't mind, that God's okay with it. Because somewhere in all of us, we believe we know best and we should follow our own hearts and conscience. But the point is, just because it is good with me doesn't mean it is good for me. Just because it's good with me doesn't mean that it's good for me. So here's the question. Who or what will inform your conscience? Who or what will be the greatest influence in informing your conscience? Who will lead your conscience? If you can't be trusted, then who? If you don't know best, then who? Culture, family, friends, religion? What if there was a fixed point what if there was a fixed point where we could anchor our value systems to? What if there was a fixed point of what is valuable and what is not valuable? What if there was a fixed point to what is right and what is wrong that we can anchor ourselves to? The good news is there is a fixed point to which we can anchor and draw our values and beliefs about right and wrong from. And as Christians, we believe that point is a person, Jesus. We believe that he showed up on the planet, he died for sin, he was buried, he was raised from the dead. And because of that, when I can't trust me, I can trust Jesus. And when I don't know best, I believe that Jesus knows best. And I can trust the scriptures that Jesus trusted to show me what is truly valuable and not valuable and what is truly right and what is truly wrong. Because if there's no fixed point, all bets are off and we ought to just go home and do whatever we wanna do because it doesn't really matter. But if there's a fixed point to which we can finally tune our conscience to, that we should care about deeply. Because the bottom line is, don't follow your conscience, follow Jesus. And as you follow Jesus, if you can finally tune your conscience to Jesus's values and Jesus's ideas and beliefs about what was right and what was wrong, your conscience will be rightly informed and it will serve you well. Because Jesus showed up in a world of conflicting consciences. He showed up in a world of, that was Jewish, in a world that was pagan and Roman. And both had a finely tuned conscience, but both had a wrongly tuned conscience. The Jews had 600 laws, the pagans basically had no laws. They had finely tuned consciences, 
but yet wrongly tuned consciences. Both of those groups of people could mistreat and misbehave in good conscience. They could mistreat people and misbehave morally in good conscience. And most of the time, I don't have time to tell you about it, but most of the time, the women and the children were the ones who paid the price. And both were able to mistreat women and children in good conscience. And Jesus showed up to reinform the consciousness of humanity, to finally tune it to what was most important to God. And when Jesus showed up, he turned an above me theology into an around me theology. Both the Jews and the pagans, they were all about an above me theology. What does God think? What does the gods think? You know, I can do this, I can't do that. They were all worried about above me theology. Jesus showed up and said, okay, let me pull your face down and let me show you what's around you. Let me show you what is most important to God. And Jesus answered that question one day. What is most important to God? And when you learn what is most important to God, according to Jesus, Jesus said, you should finally tune your conscience to it. And here's what Jesus said was most important. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. He said, that's the most important thing. And you should finally tune your conscience to that. That the most important thing in all the world is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus said, this is the first and greatest commandment. But yeah, what does it mean? It means that you place God in the center of your life and you organize your life around that. And when you do that, you'll obey God, you'll give God your best, what's important to him becomes important to you. What breaks his heart will break your heart. What he loves, you love. And all of a sudden, when you place God in the center and organize your life around it, all of a sudden, your conscience begins to be finely tuned to the fact that God's character, his values, his definitions of right and wrong begin to be your values, your definitions of right and wrong. Because according to Jesus, our savior, there's nothing more biblical, there's nothing more holy, nothing more righteous, nothing more important than to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus said, and the second is like it. Second only in sequence, but not in importance. The second commandment is equal to, it's the same importance as, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and this is, <laughs> Jesus says, here's what you need to finally tune your conscience to. The application of the first commandment, love God with all you are. The application of the first commandment happens to be obedience to the second commandment. The way that you apply the first commandment is to obey the second commandment. That is to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't obey the first commandment unless you first obey the second commandment. You can't obey the first commandment if you're disobedient to the second commandment. Jesus said, that's what you need to finally tune your conscience to. Because an above me theology, always keeping your eyes on God, sounds good, sounds spiritual, it's not biblical. An above me theology allows you to love God and unlove certain people. Jesus said, that's not the case. In an above me theology, you could be good with God and mistreat people. You could be good with God and mistreat people. Jesus said, that's not, that's not right. Your conscience has been misinformed. If you believe that you can love God and be prejudiced against black people, if you believe that you can love God and be prejudiced against white people or brown people or you know, red people, if you believe that you can love God and be prejudiced against any person, 
Your conscience has been misinformed. If you believe you can be verbally abusive to your wife and your children and love God at the same time, you have been misinformed in your conscience. If you believe that you can refuse to forgive people and withhold kindness and be rude to people, stranger or not, and love God at the same time, Jesus said your conscience needs to be recalibrated. It needs to be reinformed because it has been misinformed. Because according to Jesus, I don't care what you think. I don't care what the person next to you think. And you shouldn't really care what I think. This is about what Jesus thought and Jesus thought. Jesus thought that you can't love God and unlove a person at the same time. So that means that you can show up to church and you can sing and you can give and you can serve. But if you mistreat and unlove someone, there's something that God knows about you that you may not know about you and that no one else may know about you. And here's what God knows about you. You don't love him because you cannot love him and unlove someone else at the same time. Because loving people according to Jesus is the way that we demonstrate and authenticate our love for God. And he says, you need to finally tune. You need to anchor your conscience to that. And then Jesus defined neighbor as everyone. It's the person unlike you and it's the person who doesn't like you. And so Jesus' point for all of us, he says, tune your conscience to this. Love all people all the time, no exceptions, no exemptions. Let that inform your conscience. But then he wasn't done. Sometime later, the night that he's gonna be arrested, betrayed by Judas, he washes the feet of his disciples and then he looks at them and he says this, a new command I give to you, talking to his disciples, love one another. And they're thinking, this is not new. You told us about this, you know, love God, love people. We can't love God unless we love people. But then Jesus added something to it. Because here's what Jesus has been doing. He has been reducing our experience to one thing. In the Jewish world, he took it from 613 commandments to two commandments, love God and love people. And he's about to, in the presence of his disciples, to take it from two to one. He says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as, everybody say the word as. As I have loved you, so you must, no questions. So you must love one another. And he took all the Jewish commandments and he settled it on one. The pagans who had no commandments, he gave them one. He says, when you think about your conscience, I want it to be informed to consider how Jesus has loved you. And then I want you to love other people the way Jesus has loved you. Has he been patient with you? Of course he has. Has he refused to condemn you? Of course he has. Has he judged you? Has he ever made you feel unwelcome? Even though I've been stubborn, even though I've been slow to believe, even though I've been selfish, even though I've been sinful, even though I've been self-serving, self-indulgent, proud, arrogant, even though I've manipulated me, at times I've manipulated other people, at times I've lied, at times I've done this, at times I've done that, but yet he's never pushed me away. He's never made me feel less important. He's never made me feel less loved because of who I was or what I did. And I suspect he's been the same way with you. And Jesus says, your conscience and my conscience should be finely tuned to live like that. Because everybody is somebody Jesus died for. Everybody is somebody Jesus died for. Everybody is somebody Jesus died for. And Jesus not only could say, guys, I want you to love the way that I've loved you, but I want you to love people the way I'm about to love you. I'm gonna lay down my life for you. I'm gonna die for you. He never looked for opportunities to pull away. He never looked for an opportunity to disinvite or disenfranchise. He always looked for an opportunity to invite, to engage, to step in. He always spoke 
with uncompromised truth, but he always spoke it in unconditional grace. And he says, I want you to go make people feel the way that I've made you feel by the way that I've loved you. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciple. Not because of how much of the Bible you know, not because of what your church looks like or how much you gave or, no, by how much you love. That's how they're gonna know if you belong to me or not. And so Jesus, he says, I'm gonna re-edit that last statement. I'm going to give you this to finally tune your conscience to. Love all people, all the time, just as Jesus loved you. No exceptions, no exemptions. Love all people all the time, as Jesus has loved you, no exceptions, no exemptions. What does that mean? All people, all the time. Love white people, love black people, love red people, love brown people. I want you to love conservative people the way that I've loved you. I want you to love liberal people the way that I've loved you. I want you to love Republicans the way that I love you. I want you to love the Democrats the way that I've loved you. I want you to love the rich the way that I've loved you. I want you to love the poor the way that I've loved you. I want you to love straight the way that I've loved you. I want you to love gay the way that I've loved you. I want you to love the documented person. I want you to love the undocumented person the way that I have loved you. Whatever kind of person they are, I want you to love them as I have loved you, no exceptions, no exemptions, and in doing so, you have finally tuned your conscience to the most important thing in the universe, which is to love God. You demonstrated it and you authenticated it by the way that you love the person in front of you. That's Jesus. So Christians should never ask, what does the law require? What does the Bible require? Jesus said, it's what does love require? And it requires that you love everyone the way that Jesus has loved you. No exceptions, no exemptions. It's as simple as that and demanding as that. Jesus didn't want us to trust our hearts. He wanted us to trust his heart. His heart is the heart of God. He knows what is valuable and what is not. He ultimately knows what is right and what is wrong. And his message for all of us is you can't always trust your conscience, but you can always trust Jesus. So anchor your conscience to what he says is most important. Because if your conscience allows you to think that you are okay with God and that you love God, but yet there's some people, certain people, certain groups of people, that you can unlove, mistreat, talk about, malign, secretly hope they go to hell. He says, you, you, don't, you don't understand anything. Your conscience has been so misinformed. And I think that's why Jeremiah said in his day, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? When Jeremiah wrote those words, God's people, God's people were in a state in their lives when sin was breaking their soul, but it was not bothering their conscience. God's people had altered their beliefs to accommodate their behavior. They believed it was good with them, but it was not good for them. The reason you should not let your conscience be your guide or let your heart be your guide is 
The same reason I shouldn't is because my heart's allegiance is always to me. It serves my desires, my pleasures, my selfishness, and instinctively my heart pursues things to my own end. But Jesus introduced us to a better way to say you should finally tune your conscience to love because love is the fulfillment of all the law. That every commandment is fulfilled in this one command of love because love does no harm. Do you know what sin does? Sin harms. Sin will harm you and sin will harm those around you. But you know what love refuses to do? Love refuses to do anything that will harm you and anything that harms those around you. So when you love those around you with a conscience that is informed by love, you will never hurt you and you will never do anything to hurt anyone around you. That is the conscience that our Heavenly Father wants us to finally tune our conscience to. So here's what I wanna ask all of us to do. To be honest with ourselves, to ask God, God, has my conscience been misinformed? Do I believe that I can be okay with you, that I love you and not be okay and treat people in a way that's not like you treated me? If so, God, today, will you speak to me and help me to begin to recalibrate my conscience? Father, our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Has the psalmist prayed, search me and know me. See if there be any wicked way in me. God, speak to it. Reinform our conscience with love. A love for you that's demonstrated by love for others. A love that refuses to do anything that harms ourselves and anything that harms those around us. And in doing so, we have loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name.